Well, good morning, church family. If you have your copy of God's Word, find the book of Exodus this morning, and I want to invite you into an overview. I'm going to do something I don't normally do. One of the greatest joys of this hour is to take a passage of Scripture and to milk it for all that it's worth. But if you're a guest of ours, today we're switching gears because we've got quite a bit of ground to cover. I want to welcome you. I know you've already been welcomed. I know you've worshipped, and I want you to continue to worship. But we're in a sermon series through the book of Exodus called Plagued by Pride. We began Exodus a few months ago. We worked through the first six chapters. Then we hit pause for a vision journey called More Than Ever. And last week, we re-entered the story of Exodus in that moment where a man named Moses is called by God to go back to Egypt, his homeland, where he was born, where his life was saved, uh, and confront a Pharaoh, not the Pharaoh whose home he was raised in, but a descendant of that Pharaoh, and to tell that Pharaoh that God was ready to free his people, the Jewish people, to free his people from 400 years of captivity and slavery, and to give them the land that God had promised them through Abraham. I've been reminding you a land they're still fighting for today. So when we study this book and we see this incredible journey, it's important for us to be reminded that the struggle between good and evil and the struggle for God's people still continues. And so Moses did exactly what God said. Moses went back. He told the people he was God's man. They believed him. And they confronted Pharaoh, and Pharaoh ultimately says, I've never heard of your God. I don't know who you are. My economy and wealth is built on the slavery of your people. So in short, no, you cannot go. Moses goes back to God and says, God, I don't understand. Why would you call me out of the desert and the wilderness through the burning bush? Why would you commission me to do this? Why would you display supernatural powers and allowing things like my staff to turn into a serpent, my hand to be leprous and then be whole again? Why would you give me sign after sign after sign that you truly are going to liberate these people? And then I go before this earthly king and he says no and throws me out of his court. And God said to Moses, ultimately, because I'm God, and because I have a plan bigger than what you can see, and because I'm about to break the back of Pharaoh's pride. And he does that through a series of plagues. Now, my wife got on to me because I was raised in Alabama. She said, DJ, I love you, and and I love your preaching. I appreciate that when she says that. Preachers can always tell if they've done a good job. My wife will compliment me if it was a good sermon. If it wasn't, I'll say, did the morning make sense? She goes, it's okay. (laughs) Thanks, babe. I appreciate that. She said, DJ, I love you, but it's not plagues. It's plagues. So correct me anytime I say plague. I'm sorry. I tried to overcome my raising. It's plague. Like the word play with a G on the end. Plague. You want to do it with me? One, two, three. Plague. Half of you participated. (laughs) The other half probably would have went, plague. (laughs) So we see these plagues unfolding in the life of the Jews. Now, we have two choices before us. We could take 10 weeks (laughs) and study every plague in detail. 
But nobody wants to come on Nat Sunday or Skin Boil Sunday or Hail Sunday. And so I decided that what I would like to do is give you an overview and then draw out some themes. We began last week with the first plague where Moses turned the Nile River and all of Egypt's water into blood. So we'll pick up today with plagues two through eight, and we're going to deal with nine and ten in the weeks to come. Now, why do we do this? Well, we do this because studying historical books matter. I've been telling you for several weeks now why study the book of Exodus, and I've given you this simple little list because we are them. We are the people of God. This is the great mystery and great joy of Christ, that in Christ we are the people of God because we live in their world. I'm going to show you at the end of today's sermon how every plague we will see will be seen again in the end times. And then we serve their God. We serve the God of Moses, of Jacob, of Abraham. We just sang that in the lyric of that worship song because their story is our scripture. This is really important. I want you to pick up on this. One of the things we see when we develop a biblical worldview is that we believe in linear time. People who reject the existence of God or consign God to some supernatural force often believes that ultimately there is no beginning and there is no end to time. For example, Eastern religions that teach reincarnation ultimately would believe that time in and of itself is not constrained to any controller and your only hope is to live in such a way that you continue to reincarnate into other organisms, hopefully finding peace. Karma is the word they love to use. Christians do not believe that. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible teaches that time is linear. There was a beginning of the creation and there will be an end of the creation as we know it. And at the beginning of the creation, while God has always existed, there was a moment when out of his kindness and for his glory, he spoke creation into existence. This is clearly taught in Genesis 1 and 2. And then we know that creation was thrown into chaos by the rebellion of Adam and Eve in the garden. This explains sin. And we also know that the rest of the biblical narrative, the rest of the story of redemption, is that time is moving toward a Messiah. That Messiah comes. We'll celebrate him next month as we prepare for Christmas. Can you believe I just said next month as we prepare for Christmas? And then we know that his life and his ministry and his death and his resurrection ushered in the age of the church and now God can live in man through the presence of the Holy Spirit, and yet time continues to go on until he returns a second time. And upon his return, he will create, through judgment, a new heaven and a new earth. And then that moment called the eternal state, both words are important, eternal meaning it lasts forever, and state being a state of being, it's an ontological term, state of being, eternal state, will exist forever, and man in Christ, woman in Christ, will enjoy everything God originally intended for Adam and Eve. So we believe history is going somewhere. 
We don't believe we're caught in some endless cycle of mysterious creative force with some sort of divine mystic presence. That worldview is around. That is not the biblical worldview. However, though we believe that time is linear, inside of the redemptive story, there are cycles that keep repeating themselves. And this is important when you study the plagues. See, you have two choices. You can read the 10 plagues and go, that was really bad. Uh, that's tar- terrible. Uh, if I were Pharaoh, I think I'd have let him go on plague three or maybe six, but he went all the way to 10. Okay, moving on, next chapter. Or you can see that yes, these historical factual accounts did exist. They did accomplish a purpose, but they also teach us so much about these cycles we see in God's relationship to man. I mean, think about these cycles for a moment. I'll I'll give you just a few. There's this cycle of sin, then God judges sin. Man resists God's judgment in pride, and the pride equals resistance. We see this over and over in Pharaoh's heart. There's also this cycle of creation being thrown into chaos by the creator. In other words, God commanding earth, sea, sky, and the animal kingdom in order to show a nation that tended to worship the earth, the sea, the sky, and the animal kingdom that they are not to be objects of worship, but that there is a creator over the earth, the sea, the sky, and the animal kingdom. And so we find that God often is issues judgment upon those who would resist him through the earth, the sea, the sky, and the animal kingdom. We also see this cycle where God's initial judgment is not as severe as his final judgment. Why? Well, your Bible tells us why. God is a parent. He's a father. When when my children disobey me, If their disobedience from a one to a 10 is a two, I don't want to react with a nine. We would say it this way, we want the crime to match the punishment because what is the goal? The goal of a disobedient child is not to crush their spirit or their will or to abuse them. Of course not. In fact, any father in the room and any mother in the room knows we discipline not out of hatred or frustration, though we can be frustrated at times with their behavior. We discipline out of love. We we want them to know how to behave. What is the goal of parenting? Well, my goal has always been I want my children to be a blessing to other people. Well, if they don't know how to behave, they'll never be a blessing. So we discipline, but behavior to prepare them to be a blessing. Well, where did I get that idea from? Well, it's not from me. I'm far from perfect as a dad. It's from our heavenly father whose patience is seen in this continual progressiveness, his pursuit of his people. And and this is what you'll see as we walk through these very quickly. What you're going to find is you're going to find yourself in the text. Now, now I don't want to spiritualize the plagues. The plagues are real stories, and we've got to be real careful not to grab stories from the Bible and give them spiritual meanings the biblical author didn't intend to give them. But remember something. When we read these, we read these as people who were not there. But so, too, did the first people who read them. Moses wrote the book of Exodus years after it all happened to a generation of people who did not see the locusts, who did not see the hail, who did not see the results of the Nile turning into blood. 
Why would God, through the Spirit, inspire Moses to write it down? Because God wants his people to be aware of the cycles of sin and death and judgment so that we don't ourselves fall into those very same cycles in our own life. And if you were to reduce this to two characters, it's really not Moses. It's the pride of a king versus the power of God. The pride of a king versus the power of God. Now, in doing this study, what you learn is that the first nine plagues, I'm doing so good with that, plagues, I got till 11 to get it right. She'll be in the 11. She's teaching in the special needs ministry right now, but I've got till 11 to do it right. But in the first nine, they actually appear in three cycles. We know that nine is divisible by three, of course. And then the 10th plague is so devastating. It's a completely different animal. It's a completely different level of judgment. We'll deal with that in a few weeks. But in thinking about that, I would like to structure our journey with these three cycles. I want you to see them. Cycle number one is what I would call a cycle of denial. This is where Pharaoh basically says, I cannot deny the existence of what I'm seeing, but I'm going to deny that it should have any impact on my heart or my life. When we look at these three plagues, the first one we see is, of course, the one we dealt with last week. You can go back and listen to that sermon where God, through the power of Moses' staff, turns the water into blood. And then we come to one I remember as a little boy thinking would be pretty amazing to see, the plague of frogs. Chapter 8 of the book of Exodus. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. Frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people, ooh, and your ovens. Now, I like fried frog legs. It's hard to find places to get them. I do enjoy them. They put a little bounce in my step. But uh, <laughs> you don't even have to pay for that. The frogs shall come up on your people and all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, over the pools. Make the frogs come up onto the land. So that Aaron stretched out his hand in the waters of Egypt, verse 6. And the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. Now, now watch verse 7. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Egypt. We've seen this pattern before that the magicians, whether through demonic power or through sleight of hand, get in front of Pharaoh and sort of halfway create what's happening under the staff of Moses. Or sometimes it's mentioned that Aaron is the one doing the actual work that Moses commands him to do. Now, again, frogs. Deadly? Well, there are a few in the world, but most of the time they're not deadly. Little boys love to pick them up and chase little girls, and we see them quite often, especially when it warms up on our patios and around. Do I want them in my oven or in my bed? No. Is it life 
changing? It can be. The other night, my precious Sadie, my favorite child, she's my seven-year-old boykin, she, she decided to corner a skunk. We live way out in the country, and she came back to the house completely sprayed down. And she decided to jump on the back couch of the back porch and rub her face because it was in her eyes. Now, she has been outside for days. She's not allowed in her kennel. She'll sleep outside. Laurel says she's going to get cold. I don't care. Don't make any difference to me when she gets cold. The Lord put a fur blanket on her. She's fine. She's going to be fine. And I made the other two dogs sleep with her so they could stay warm. And I have not yet decided when I will let her back in her kennel at night in our mudroom. Did it devastate us? No. Did anyone's life be lost? No. But was it fun coming home to a dog that literally made the hair in my nose curl when she jumped up and licked me and I realized what was going on? This is the idea behind this first plague. It's this idea of inconvenience and Pharaoh reacts. Look what the Bible says happens beginning in verse 13, or excuse me, verse 11, the frog shall go away from you and in your house and in your service, your people, they shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses promises they're going to go away. Why could he make that promise? Well, look what happened in verse eight. Look above. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people and I will let you go. So right out of the gates, Moses, I'm done. I'll let you go if you'll get rid of these frogs. Moses said, be pleased to command me when I am to plead. Now, this is important. If you're a Bible student, underline this. Moses says, Pharaoh, you set the time. Tell me when you want to go ask God to get rid of these frogs. And then he does something very strange. He says, verse 18, verse 10, rather, tomorrow. Scholars have always wondered, what, Pharaoh, if it's that bad, why tomorrow? Why would you say that? Some people believe it's because often God approached his men and men approached God in the morning. And so Pharaoh just assumed, in the morning, when you pray for me, tomorrow. Others have said, why well, put off tomorrow what can be done today? I, I don't know. The text doesn't give us any indication. But Pharaoh says, well, pray tomorrow. So Pharaoh's somewhat in control of the situation. Tomorrow, get rid of it. And then look what happens. Verse 13. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, Ugh. the courtyards and in the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. I grew up with the King James Version. It would say, stinketh. And the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw, there was a respite. Now, if you don't know what that word means, a break, a rest, an escape, a respite. When Pharaoh saw there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. This is one of those cycles we're going to see over and over again. God, please give me relief. God gives relief from judgment, and immediately Pharaoh falls right back into the trap of his own heart. And what you'll find when you analyze all ten plagues is that some of the time, Pharaoh hardens his heart. Other times, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And I've told you that there is a mystery in the relationship of God's control over Pharaoh's heart. But both are shown in the text. There's no indication that Pharaoh ever came to the Lord until the 10th plague with a truly broken heart. And even the 10th plague, we will see, 
will cause him to be broken in defeat, but ultimately not change spiritually. Just a quick word of application. There is a difference between godly sorrow and being sorry that something bad or uncomfortable has happened. Now, now just sit in that for a moment. There is a difference between godly sorrow over sin and just being sorry that something bad or uncomfortable has happened. Do you you know when spiritual maturity is usually on display? Spiritual maturity, I think, is best seen when we fail. I'm not suggesting that we ought to go sin to see how mature we are. I'm saying I learn a lot from the depth of a woman's walk with God or a man's walk with God when they find themselves having sinned. One of the things we teach people about the gospel is that while the gospel results in joy and peace and hope and forgiveness and love and purpose, the gospel begins with a deep sense of brokenness over our sin. In fact, if you try to change or turn from sin without first feeling genuine sorrow over it, your repentance won't last very long. And the reason is, is that when someone truly surrenders to the Lord, he begins forming his desires in them, which means we begin to desire what the Lord desires. So if a relationship is strained, what does the Lord desire? He desires reconciliation. If there is temptation or lust in our mind or our heart, what does the Lord desire? He desires for us to walk in holiness and purity. If there is laziness or a lack of purpose or passion, what does the Lord desire? He desires us to acknowledge our struggles, but to stand up and to serve the Lord, to to make a difference with our lives. So as a woman submits her life to the Lord, as a man submits his life to the Lord, he or she begins to desire what the Lord desires. Does the Lord ever desire that we sin? No. So when I sin and I step outside of his desires for my life, I feel genuine sorrow. Paul told the Corinthian believers of this. We spent a lot of time in the Corinthian letters. In 2 Corinthians 7, for godly grief produces a, produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Without regret, whereas worldly grief only produces death. There's a story I won't go into detail, but a friend of mine shared with me an article this week about a pastor in Alabama who had been outing for living a secret double life. A life that involved engaging in cross-dressing, engaging in transgender fantasy. The article outed him. He made a tertiary apology and was suspected of being in danger. And the police found him and went on a slow speed race. He was being followed. He pulled over to the side of the road and ended his life violently with a handgun. Basically, his world came crushing down on him because of the things that were hidden, the things that were not of repentance and sorrow. And what I would say to any person, no matter the depth of their depravity, no matter where they've been, as long as there is life in you and the grave is empty, and both are true, 
There is hope. There is forgiveness. There is a way to repent and to be forgiven. But the minute you deny the depth and the sorrow of your sin, Paul says it produces death. The interesting thing about frogs is we find it comical. It's odd. It's inconvenient. No one wants to see the carcasses of dead animals all around their home. But we're just starting. These are just hints of the death that is to come. Which leads, of course, to the third plague. The third plague is not frogs, it's gnats. I hate gnats. And, and I don't know what it is about my eyeballs, but gnats love my eyeballs. I am a professional gnat digger-outer of eyeballs. I'm the person my kids come to because I don't care about their wimps or whines or crying. I put my knee on their throat and I, take, and I pull the eyeball apart and I take a t-shirt or something, and I, and, and I don't know if they feel any better because they're walking around like, he got the gnat out, but I can't see. I mean, they are so annoying. And in South Carolina, we have this wonderful phenomenon called no They will eat your lunch. I am not scared of tigers, bears, or timber rattlers, but chiggers and no my goodness, I have dealt with them all of my life. Give me those and a yellow jacket's nest, and I'll repent of anything in my life that I'm doing that is against the will of God. Well, look what happens in this passage beginning in verse 16. Then the Lord says, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so, and Aaron stretched out his hand, the staff struck the dust of the earth. Now we're seeing transformative. We didn't see that with the frogs. We saw it with the blood. The blood was turned to wine. The dust is turned to gnats. In a few minutes, we'll see soot will be turned to skin boils. The dust of the earth, verse 18. This is important. Watch this. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not do it. You can hide a frog in your pocket. But I don't know what you're going to do to wrangle gnats. I've heard of seen cartoons of a flea circus, but I've never witnessed one. The, in reality, these magicians had come to the end. Now watch what happens with the magicians. This is so good. Look at verse 19. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Now, they're not converting. They're not ready to renounce their faith and all their false gods. This finger of God phrase is the same your insurance used when it describes a hurricane. It's an act of God. In other words, man didn't produce this. An arson can burn a house down. But no human being can create a hurricane or a tornado. We can simulate them in a laboratory. But no one can communicate or, excuse me, create uh, earth-shattering acts of God. That's what the insurance company actually calls them. They're cataclysmic in nature. That's what they're saying. This is the finger of God. But look at verse 19. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. So first three plagues, cycle of denial. Secondly, second cycle. I would call this the cycle of distinction. Because then we get to the plague of flies. Now, if gnats weren't bad enough, here come the flies. Look at verse 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh. As he goes out to the water, remember Pharaoh goes out to worship and to bathe. And say to them, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people into your houses and the houses of the Egyptians. Now watch this, verse 22. 
But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen. Why? That's where the Israelites lived. Where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that they may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. And he just tells us why. Look at verse 23. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. And that's exactly what he did. Now, you know what this means? This means that both the Jews and the Egyptians suffered from the first three plagues. If all the water in the Nile is blood, all the water in the Nile is blood. And if frogs come up everywhere, frogs come up everywhere. And if gnats come everywhere, gnats come everywhere. But at this point, he's ratcheting up the suffering. We're going from inconvenience and biting insects to now we're dealing with flies that can carry disease. And he says, I'm going to do something that only God can do. I'm going to control a fly. You can put a tiger in a cage. You can go to a zoo and have your toddlers in crocs with a sippy cup standing feet from an animal that would destroy them were it not for the thick glass, the cables, the wire, or the cage. We can control a mammal. You try to cage a fly and then try to keep flies from swarming over a specific area of a nation of a nation. Think about this. We're in the year 2023. We can't close a border. And yet what God says is, God says, I am going to stop all the flies from swarming over my people. And he does it for two reasons. One, he says, I want you to know who my people are. And two, I want my people to know who I am. See, the plagues are not just about breaking Pharaoh's pride. It's about building the faith of the people that he's about to release. If I know my life can be taken by a king who wants me enslaved, I'm much more likely to strike out with Moses if I've watched this God who I've never seen, who I was not told about. Remember, this generation knew not Joseph, who I was not told about, display his creative power. And that's exactly what happens. It's this idea of God setting his people apart to not be judged. Come on, somebody. You know what Paul says in the book of Romans? But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. God has this pattern of taking a people out of his wrath and saying, these are mine. And I'm going to protect them. And I'm going to display, as the fire of my judgment comes down on sin, the grace of my heart comes down on these people. And I will display in them my favor and my goodness. This is why the gospel's so good. Everything you see in the scriptures about judgment over sin is escaped in Christ. Because every ounce of judgment God has for sin was poured out on Christ. This is why nobody, nobody should wake up with more hope than you. I know the king and he has removed me from his wrath. And, and, and therefore, 
while I may experience the ramifications of a broken world with cancer and war and disease and famine, I will never know the wrath of God. He has set me apart. And he started this way back when he called Abraham. And he's continuing it right now. And guess what happened? The flies swarmed in except for in Goshen. Now, look what takes place in this passage. Verse 25. After these flies come in, Pharaoh called Moses and said, go sacrifice to your God within the land. Moses says, oh no, that's not what I asked for. You ever try to negotiate with God? Pharaoh said, okay, you can go sacrifice, just don't leave. He says, no, no, no. Why? The Egyptians will kill us if they see us sacrificing animals. They don't understand what we're doing. That's exactly what he says. Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 26 of chapter 8. It would not be right to do so for the offerings that we sacrifice for the Lord or of God, Lord our God, are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days journey into the wilderness. Verse 28. So Pharaoh said, I'll let you go sacrifice to the Lord of the wilderness only you must not go very far. Plead for me. The flies have gotten personal. You know, the servants could have kept the frogs out of Pharaoh's personal bathroom. The servants could have found Pharaoh some water to drink. The servants may have done a pretty good job of keeping the doors closed to control the gnats. But the flies are everywhere. They had not yet invented the screen door. So he says, pray for me, Moses. Plead for me, I am tired of this inconvenience. And then, of course, we see what happens. Look down in verse 31, and the Lord did, as Moses asked, and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants and his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Same thing with the fifth plague, the livestock die. Look what the Bible says in verse, nine, or verse 1 of chapter 9. Go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord of God of Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall, a very severe plague upon your livestock. Some historians think the flies brought it. A very historic plague on the livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, and the herds of the flocks. Don't think the petting zoo or the pumpkin patch you took your kids to. Think uh, truest. Think... Um, Think a national bank. Think Wachovia. Think Synovus. Think Regions Bank. These are the places you go to deposit your income, to keep it secure, and they insure your money. You may keep some cash on hand for a rainy day. I doubt anyone in this room has every single dime you're worth in your sock drawer. I hope you don't. Some of you may be college students saying, yeah, I do. It's $47.13. It's $47.13. But once you acquire a certain measure of wealth, you use a banking service. That's your lifeblood. If the economy falls, what's the first thing society do? They rush on the banks and the banking system caves from within. In the ancient world, your livestock was your livelihood. And he said, I'm going to strike them down. Now, by the time we get to the fifth plague, we're seeing death to organisms. The frogs died, but they were the problem in the first place. Now the livestock are dying. But interestingly, look what happens in this plague. I think this is 
pretty significant. He says, tomorrow, verse 5, the Lord will do this thing. And the next day, the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of the Israel was dead. But his heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. The last of the cycle of distinction are the skin boils in verse 8 of chapter 9. Take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air. It shall become fine dust over the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land. Now watch this. Look at verse 11. First thing Pharaoh always did when Moses did something was like, hey, give me my boys in here. Y'all do it too. Show him we got some power. Look at verse 11. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. Can you see Pharaoh's son? Get me my guys in here. Uh, they called in sick. Where they at? He can't even stand up. He so broke out. What happened? Look around, Pharaoh. Everything you see, your magicians are sick too. What God is doing is he's chipping away at everything Pharaoh can put his confidence in. Now listen. God has a pattern of dethroning any false god in anyone's life. If you seriously seek the face of God, he's going to come after the things your heart worships. Don't be upset at God when he infects the gods of your life. Every plague can be tied back to some relationship with an Egyptian god. They had a god with a frog head. They worshiped the earth, the wind, the sky, the water of the Nile. And because of that, God was chipping away at every form of deity they have. And then, of course, we not only see the cycle of distinction, I end today with the cycle of devastation. This is where we get into plague seven and eight, and we'll talk about nine more tomorrow. But when we get to those plagues, which begins in the last half of chapter nine, we finally see the hail come. In verse 13, for the Lord said, rise up early in the morning and present yourself. And then he says, for time will send all plague. From this time, I will send all my plagues on yourself, on your servants, on your people, that you may know. God announced. Everything I've done so far has been somewhat superficial. Maybe some people died. I doubt it. But they've been inconvenienced. Their health is breaking down. And many of their animals are dead. But now, everything I do will be felt by everyone you love. Look at verse 15. For by now... I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power, that my name may be proclaimed on earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, verse 18, I will cause very heavy hell to fall. Therefore, therefore send, get your livestock. Notice how God's offering it out. Get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field that is not brought home will die when the hell falls on them. Now look at verse 20. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. So whether or not Pharaoh's waking up, 
People are waking up. Interesting phrase. To fear the hand of the Lord is not to worship or love him, but recognize he is real, and so far, everything he said he's going to do, he's done. I'm believing I'm going to put my cow up. I'm glad it got left anyway. Bring the servants or the slaves in. And that's exactly what did. You can read it yourself. I don't have time. Hail falls. It destroys everything in its path. Some of you have hail damaged cars in the past when quick storms will hit and it'll be 100 degrees outside and all of a sudden golf ball size hail will be raining and you know the damage it can do. Imagine the hail large enough to take the life of animals to destroy the crops and to destroy the structures. And this is what happens. And then look what takes place way down in verse 30. We have this conversation of how the hail didn't strike Goshen, and Moses is saying, what are you going to do? And Pharaoh's saying, please pray for me. Look at verse 30. But as for you and your servants, I know that you still, or you not, you do not fear the Lord. That's the first time in the Bible that phrase is used in that way. I know you don't fear the Lord. Now, when you, when you think about that, it's important to recognize what that means. To fear the Lord is to really be in awe of who he is, to appreciate his supremacy, to genuinely fear the consequences of disobeying him, and to make sure that you don't take your relationship with him lightly. I, I think there's a lot of modern communication that gets called preaching that has lost its fear of God. Fear of God is not the absence of joy or laughter. I love walking through the halls of a church filled with laughter and joy. But the fear of the Lord is, is that we take him very seriously. G God is not to be mocked or to be treated flippantly. It is not a casual friendship or a Sunday morning loyalty to know the one true living God. And, and there's this little tidbit in this passage that says some of the wheat was left, almost indicating that Moses knew that Pharaoh's heart was so hard when he found out there was something left to feed his nation, he would not turn. And then, of course, after this plague, the plague of hell, do we find darkness and ultimately locusts? Now, the locusts come in chapter 10, verse 4, and they fall out in that passage just as the rest have done. And the interesting thing about the locust is verse 20. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people go. Judgment, repercussions, pride, resistance. Do you know the world still sees the judgment of God all the time? And the world one day will see it at the end. Now, I familiarize, these, familiarize you with these plagues. You can close your Bible. Do you know that when the Lord returns, according to the book of Revelation, almost all of these plagues will be seen again in some shape or form? Let me just real quick look with me on the screen. Revelation 6, 8, and I looked and behold a pale horse and his rider's name was death and Hades followed him and they were given authority over the fourth earth to kill with a sword, famine and pestilence by wild beasts of the earth. Again, just a few chapters later, the first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hell and fire mixed with blood. Haven't we seen two of those three? 
And these were thrown upon the earth, and the third of the earth was burned. A third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Again, next verse, literally next verse. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and the sea became blood. Just a few chapters later in Revelation 9, a few verses later, then from the smoke came locusts on the earth. Came locusts on the earth. Interestingly, in verse 4, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant, but only those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. An outward sign of faithfulness, just like the boils were an outward sign of faithlessness. It goes on to say, John wrote, So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and the harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast. Same chapter, just a few verses later in Revelation. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, of the mouth of the beast, and of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. The cycle continues. But in Christ, For us, the cycle is broken. I am a child of God. I'm in Goshen. And when he returns, I have nothing to fear. So don't resist him today. This is why the writer of Hebrews writing to Christians said these words. Therefore, if the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, a reference back to Exodus. Today, if God is dealing with you about something, don't harden your heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us an opportunity this morning to walk through these incredible plagues. Thank you for the privilege of knowing that you are a God in hot pursuit of your people. You will avenge your name. You will bring justice to that which is wrong. And you will punish the rebellion of man against you. And Lord, I belong in that rebellion. I have the same potential hardened heart as any Pharaoh who ever ruled Egypt. But by your grace, you have revealed your son. And because of that, every Christian in this room has been removed from your wrath forever. So do not, Lord, please do not let us harden our hearts when the old cycles cycle back around and we find ourselves being tempted to allow our pride to go toe-to-toe with the power of a king. Church family, I could never stand up here and know, but with your head bowed, is there any area of your life you've been resisting the will, the conviction, and perhaps even the judgment of God. If you don't learn anything from today's passage, learn this. If God is convicting you of something in your life, it is because he loves you. It is because he is patient. It is because he has better for you. Do not harden your heart.
I'm going to pray and we're going to stand and sing. And as we do, would you reflect on that? Maybe you want to go to our prayer room this morning and pray with someone about an issue in your life. You're certainly welcome to always come to this altar and kneel and pray. What I would appreciate you not doing is treating the invitation song as an early exit. I believe your God is worth a few moments of your worship and of you reflecting on Him. So you just do as He leads. Father, would you lead now as only you can. In Jesus' name.